0: Okay, Swamiji is trying to get us into a a state of mind in which we can transcend the limits of time. Um, I did not find this lesson easy to understand. I've been working very hard in my consciousness trying to sort of ground it somewhere in my own experience um, to really be able to talk about this. But I find it... um, extremely interesting, so we might have to work together a little bit tonight to see if we can make it, or by the grace of God, some greater sense of clarity will come to me as we work on this. Um, I know this is a subject that Swamiji has often enjoyed talking about on more than one occasion. He's, he sort of went through this period where he was having all these revelations in his own understanding of space and time and He would describe to us this planet without any movement at all on it, and how if there's no movement, there's no time, that you have to have some point of reference. If there's no movement, there's no space, that there's a whole different um, fact that's perceivable. Last week when I was talking, I think in this class, about superconsciousness, and was describing how Swami described in his own autobiography and then later in another, another place about how when he was a little baby, a little child, he used to enter into a state of superconsciousness every night when he went to sleep. He just did that. He thought it was normal. Then in his late, later childhood and adolescence, he lost the ability to do that. He sort of repudiated the ability to do that and didn't come back to it until after Master taught him to meditate and then he he describes for us entering back into superconsciousness and not only recognizing that state from his childhood which would be one thing you would expect but as he described it it was the same moment that no time had passed because in superconsciousness there is no time that time is a factor of the vibration of om in creation uh, making movement, giving us this sense of sequential events. Master describes time as actually being like a movie reel, being shown from the projections booth, which can be speeded up or slowed down or played backwards, and that it's only our um, being in this dream world that makes us feel like we're always in this limited reality that's going forth sequentially. Then Master Uh, modifies that by pointing out to us that even even if you're having a dream, it's real on the level of being a dream. And this is how, even though we can philosophically talk about all these transcendent realities that are applicable even here and now, nonetheless, as long as we're living in this reality we have to live according to the rules of it. It, We may find suddenly that it was not what it seemed, but as long as we're here, these events take place. He says, you have to be practical, otherwise you might starve to death, was the specific phrase he used. Now, I'm going to just try to talk about this from what I can understand. Because he's trying to relate this quality of time to the reality of material success and the extent to which our hypnosis with the concept of time stops our inspiration and also makes our energy flow, um, breaks our energy flow. Um, Part of it he begins by saying that we tend to think of, we tend to see life too much in terms of segments, and from the point of view of accomplishment, which is what this course is all about, we tend to think that I have to do this, and then when I finally get this done, then I'll do that, and then when I get that done, I'll do this next thing. But he said, in fact, what's really happening behind all those specific events is that we're putting out a flow of energy. And the more we allow our awareness to be broken up by all the little things that happen the more fragmented our energy is than just seeing it as one continuous flow of energy and the form that's pasted on top of it is, is less the definition of what's happening than the flow of energy that we have going from behind it. Does that make sense? I learned this actually first from my husband, David, in, uh, when we were first married... Um, I had had always been a procrastinator um, because of um, a sense of anxiety, a a sense of overperfection, and being anxious about making small decisions caused me to procrastinate, and then I would only make them sort of when I had to, and I was always scrambling at the end. Now that's actually less the point. Let me think what the actual point is. Oh, I know what, what I really meant to say with that was, there's a quality to David that those of you who've known him for a long time may recognize. And that quality is that he's always the same. (laughs) And uh, he's been the same for all the 30-some years that I've known him. And it was characterized perfectly. I'm using him as an example because I know him and most of you know him. Um, I'm not a big person on astrological readings and psychic readings and things like that. But every once in a while over the course of decades I've um, indulged. And occasionally I've dragged him to an event or two and I brought him to a, a well-known astrologer. And the man did a reading for David, which wasn't a particularly good reading anyway, I think because David just kind of put up a barrier like that. But as we walked out, he turned to me and he said, can we not spend money on this sort of thing anymore like that? <laughs> and, his, and he said, every morning I get up I put out the best energy I can, I face whatever I have to do, and I do it with all my willpower. He said, I don't really care what else is going on. Which is just a very interesting way to put it. You know, because, and that's when I I really understood from him something I've watched for a long time, which is, he just moves in a flow of energy. And I had tended, have tended in my life, to move, I'll do this for a while, and I'll do this for a while, and I'll do that for a while, and I like to do this, and I don't like to do that, and this one is hard, so I'll do this one because it's easy. And the whole project is all broken up into likes and dislikes and all these little events, much less so now, but this was more, much more true when I was younger. Things I'm afraid of, the things I like, the things I can do easily, the things I can't. And so the energy is, you know, always going like this. Because here it is, here it is, there it is, there it isn't. You know, and his energy is just remarkably steady. And he makes fast decisions and he makes them sort of comfortably. He just makes one after another. He makes them as soon as they come across his desk. He can never understand why I always want to wait a little while. Invariably, my response is, let's wait a little while, you know. It's just like I have to have a little time. And I mean, even just reading this tonight, I think, why do I need a little time for it? Swami actually sort of makes fun of that. He says, there's this illusion that we have That somehow things will go better if we take more time doing them. And I mean, that just, and the fact is, if they take longer, that must mean that they're better. He's not talking about hurrying, he's just talking about the thought that time itself creates excellence. Where it isn't time that creates excellence, it's energy and inspiration that creates excellence. And we often have it in our mind that that energy and inspiration are not under our command. And therefore, we want to wait until some other time when we think they will be under our command. I mean, I know that's precisely what my own thinking is. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because I'm not inspired now and then maybe a little bit later I might be. And if I'm not then, then maybe at this point I will be. And usually, eventually, if I pulse on long enough, then I will feel, you know, some greater clarity about it. But part of that is because the mind has taken all things and divided them up into a whole bunch of individual events that we have to cognize and relate to each of them individually. And what Swamiji is asking us here, and he's approaching it through the angle of time, which is a a sort of a very elevated way to approach it, but what he's trying to get us to understand is that all of this seeming sequence and breakup is really not, not what's happening. What's happening is one continuous flow of energy. And he uses as examples waves on the ocean. The waves go up and down. And so we see that a wave is going up. We see that a wave is going down. And we imagine that something is happening, to, that, that there's a reality to the wave. Things are going well right now. Things are going badly right now. You know, Things are going so-so right now. Things have sunk. Things have just like this... Because all those waves are moving. And just looking at it without having any understanding of the ocean, you would think of each of those waves as separate events. But in fact, what you're seeing is this continuous, essentially unchanging movement of the ocean. And the more we can um, center ourselves really in the center of ourself, where the energy is always flowing. And and again, he puts this in terms of time because of the the fact, and he he makes the statement in there, no matter how many incarnations you have, no matter how many planets you incarnate on, I loved he just threw that in, no matter how many planets you live on, you will always just be acting, though you live through many incarnations and on countless planets, you will remain forever centered in yourself, wherever you are, and wherever your interests take you, you will always be right here, right now. Why not live wholly, wholly, at the one spot you can never leave, no matter how earnestly you seek elsewhere your own self? Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Uh, You know, I'm amused here because some of you I've shared with you when I first started reading spiritual teachings when I was... Not quite 19, still 18 years old. And uh, I was just just beginning to get the vocabulary for the sort of way of life I'd been groping for all, all my growing up years. And it was very exciting to me. And I had my first divine revelation when I was washing dishes in a very impatient manner which is like sort of trying to get this thing done so I could do that and not quite really being concentrated on it here because my mind was in a thousand other places and just sort of being as I tend to be and as I especially was then. And I really heard inside my head what I could only call a divine voice. And the divine voice said, what's your hurry, honey? It's just one damn thing after another. Just like that. And I mean, it had a real profound effect on me. But... I see it now, oddly enough, in the light of this uh, teaching that he's putting here. You know, it's like we never ever finish, ever. Nor do we ever escape. Nor does anything ever really change. So what are we waiting for? What are we rushing to? What do we expect will happen when we get there? And that's what he says, no matter how many incarnations you live, no matter how many planets you live in, you will always be standing right where you're standing. So why not just center in and be in that reality? Just think for a little bit what it would be not to be divided between past and future. But not, and then Swami makes this point over and over again. This lesson's beginning to make sense as I talk about it. He talks about the fact that because we're thinking that way, the the negative response to that is to become very lackadaisical, very blasé. Oh, I just live in the now. You know people who are like that? I don't really worry about anything. I just live in the now. We'll just be in the present. Everything's going to work out. But if we become low energy, inattentive, or sloppy in the way that we do things, we're not really fully in the now either. We're just in the kind of nowhere because the um, the true now that we 're living in is the perception of eternity and, and that that swami 's peculiar peculiar peculiarly fascinating statement that doing kriya after he was a disciple of master brought him back to the same moment in the early years of his incarnation because in both occasions he essentially stepped outside of the oscillations of time and space. And when movement stops, this is what Swami tries to explain, I'm just going to say it, because I can't really see it with my mind, even though I've been trying for years. I try so hard to see this, I never can. Movement stops. If there's no movement, and if there's no, nothing to measure, then there's no time. So when, he's, when you step out of this oscillating world nothing has changed that's why it's the, it was the same moment in superconsciousness because there's nothing to change there's just the simple oneness of spirit and how could you measure that because there's nothing to measure it against time has to be measured against something doesn't it it has to be later than it was <laughs> it has to be earlier than it will be and if there is no will be and there no was then there's absolutely nothing to measure isn't that just a remarkable thought? Now, the question is, and Swami teases us in this lesson, he says, you know, here's some really, really far out ideas, but we're not going to go there because they're too far out. We're trying to just talk about material success of all things. But, you know, a lot of this, um, well, on one level, material success um, is, a, is a useful tool for happiness. In Swami, in Master's book, How to Be Happy All the Time, the the books that Clarity Publishers puts out of Yogananda's writings, there's a it's a wonderful book, How to Be Happy All the Time. It's very interesting how much of that book talks about money. It, it was really quite surprising to me because the because money is like this. Um, it's like this constant examination. It's one of the it's one because money is about so many aspects of our nature that our ability or inability to manifest money or to manifest prosperity because prosperity can be different than money. Like a monk living in a a cave somewhere can be extremely prosperous because he can have everything he, he needs in abundance. You know, but he may not have any money because he doesn't need any money. He just needs the place to live and the bowl of rice or whatever it is. But the ability to f- to be, feel and be prosperous according to what one's needs are is a, a kind of constant reflection back to us of where our consciousness is. And I think that's really the words that we're looking for. What does he call this? Material success. You know, he doesn't really call it uh, money. He doesn't call it wealth either. He just talks about success on the material plane which is being able to live as we want to live. So... Let me think. There was a point that I was going to. Let me find it again. Oh, he was, he was talking about, um, you know, just, just using the parts of these ideas that relate to our ability to manifest. You know, it's interesting. Um, oh, let's see her name. Mataji, Vanamali Devi, who's a, a devotee of Krishna, Uh, who lives up in Rishikesh. She's a friend of Ananda. She's written a couple of lovely books. The Divine, The Play of God, which is the stories of Krishna. It's really a lovely book. And she's written uh, several others. But she's above all a Krishna devotee, and that's the book that shines really with her devotion. She's a, just a, sort of like, she's she's the epitome of refined spiritual India. She's a woman of approximately my age, and she lives with her cousin in a very simple way up in the mountains there. And I don't know what the context was. We were having a satsang with her and someone asked her a question about feeling stressed and too much to do. And uh, she responded by referring in a, a, a less complete way to the fact of how elastic time actually is. It's a very interesting concept. And she says whenever she's feeling pressured and feels like she has too much to do, she goes into what she calls Krishna time. You know, which is she goes into the, the time that where Krishna lives, which is very different than where we live. And she says she turns all the clocks to the wall and just concentrates on doing whatever it is that she has to do. And she says, invariably, she completes whatever task she has to, has to complete in the allotted time. And it's a, it's a very interesting. Ever since I heard her say that, and because I myself have a, a lot of different things that go on in my life, and I'm often you know, a little overextended and have to make things happen in a certain time. I found that to be actually and literally true. That whenever the the sense of, I don't have enough time to do this sets in, that if you can banish the thought of time, really, I mean the concern for time, and just really focus in. Now, bear in mind, this is not, oh, well, I'm not going to worry about the time, so I'll just, take a nap and I'll make a phone call and, you know, I'll just stare out the window for a while and I'll sort of try to get in tune with what I'm doing. It's like you have to... What you do is you don't ignore it. You go deeper into it. You go just deep into the place where it's not about a series of events. It's just about a flow of energy. And it's just amazing to me how many times when that happens the task just simply gets done in the period of time that's given to it, but you have to turn the clocks to the wall. Because if you play it both ways, if you sort of are also always looking at the clock, you know, it's kind of like you have to get yourself completely out of that. Maybe a person of greater spiritual depth than I could be in both realities at once. Or you have to accept that you're simply going to put out as much energy as is required to do this without regard for time. I've had several occasions uh, in the, over the last six months when I was working on projects. I'm moving into another one because we're doing the school play and I'm working on the costumes. And there are times, when we did the play last year, interestingly it was Krishna and I went very specifically into Krishna time, on the on the night before the first play rehearsal, because of really kind of dumb decisions on my part, I was just... I was just buried in things that had to be done. And they were all spread out in the sanctuary here. I had all the different projects on different chairs. I had about eight rows of chairs. Every chair had something on it. The the whole thing was set up here and there were these two huge color cutouts of Krishna. I mean, one was as large as life and one was bigger than life. I think I had to teach a class in here. Yeah, I had to teach a class because it was Tuesday night. I had to teach my Tuesday night class And the first performance was on Wednesday morning. And after the class was finished, you know, I just spread all my stuff out here. And I I never looked at the clock. And I just sat down and I just started working one to the other. I really went into Krishna time. And it was, well, it was one of the most blissful nights of my life. I spent the whole night, literally until dawn, sitting in here with me, just me and the two Krishnas, just one after another, just doing those projects and just... But part of what I knew made it work was that I completely divorced myself from the idea of how long this would take, whether or not I needed to sleep, um, whether or not I would be able to get it done. It was just, here it is. It needs to happen. We're just going to start moving through it. And I sewed all night. You know, I finished just in time to go home and change my clothes and come back, you know, to meet the kids. And I lasted as long as I needed to. And then at three in the afternoon, somebody was talking to me about something quite important. And I kept just falling dead asleep in the (laughs) middle of the conversation. I mean, not just dozing off, but just like total blanking out. I said, I really don't think we can have this conversation. And I had to give up. Um, But a number of times also, since then, I've had to to pull all-nighters, which is like a college thing. But for I've just been caught, and it's almost always been about sewing, because when I was working on the Blue Project, which I talked about earlier, several nights, same thing. It was just like, this is when it has to be done. This is the only time that it can be done, and therefore, it shall be done. You know, it just simply has to be manifested, and therefore, it will be manifested. And that's, I mean, that's in my little tiny way I was realizing, that's how I've been practicing, you know, what he's been trying to say, sort of discovering it by accident almost, that it's only when we put ourselves into that box of of, uh, of being limited. Now, he's um, also talking to us about the ability to draw inspiration. And this is what we talked about a lot last week, you know, the the power to focus ourselves with sufficient magnetism that that inspiration will be here. And then he adds a very interesting point to it. He says, you need to make time part of your divine demand. You have to say, not only do I need to be able to do this work, but I need to do it now because I have to have it by tomorrow. And, and he mentions in several instances, Swami gives these long stories of situations in which he was totally pressed and had to produce something in in an absurdly limited amount of time, so that was also part of what he needed to have. I need to not only be able to do this, but I need to be able to do it immediately without stopping, because I just don't have any time to stop and think about any of this. And he even describes, just as he's working through it, how the, the rational mind, and he says here, the rational mind will get in your way, because the rational mind will tell you I need a little time to think this through. And he said he was in a situation where he didn't have a little time to think it through. So he just had to move out of the part of himself that's committed to a linear process and into the part that says, if it can be known, it can be known now. And then as he describes, he said, he just had crystal clear ideas that he was able to, in this case, write And he said later, when he had more time to sort of reason it out, he said they held up perfectly. But they weren't achieved from that. They were just achieved from this direct. Now, there's many aspects of this, which is um, the difference, and, and this is what we were saying at the beginning, the difference between living at the periphery of reality, where everything is fragmented, and moving back into the center of reality where it it doesn't merely appear to be the same, it is the same. This is what David was trying to say to me. He said, look, if my Saturn is in a bad period, if my Mercury is in Fresno, or wherever it happens to be trapped, and all of these things are happening, it really doesn't... Those are peripheral events compared to the fact that I just... Here I am, and it's my responsibility to move forward, and I'm going to move forward. And all of those details are just the waves going up and down on the ocean, and it's not necessary to name all those waves. Um, his problem, as he put it, or his responsibility, was exactly the same, which is whatever was in front of him required attention, and he would give it that attention. But it was, his focus was on the flow of energy from within, not the specific things he was applying it to. And now I'm remembering what I was going to say earlier, that I did learn to him right at the beginning. And I've told this story in the context of our building that house out near Crystal Hermitage, so I won't tell the whole thing, but my my sense when I first um, married him was I had a lot of do's and don'ts about the spiritual path. And I had a whole lot of this is spiritual and this isn't. You know, just kind of like Uh, Well, I had been a nun, but kind of like nun thinking from Catholic monasteries where you have a whole lot of what's allowed and what isn't. That kind of, with all due respect, kind of prissiness that nuns can get in. Where there's women can get in in general, but especially pious women, you know, where there's always this slightly shocked sort of, you know, attitude about things. I want to tell you this joke. There was this woman, this is a true comment, from this woman who... Um, in this lifetime is a, a, a medium. She's a trance, you know, she, she's an intermediary for departed spirits and that's really what she does. She's well-known, but I can't remember her name. And uh, she, oddly enough, even though she's a, 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 a transmitter of messages and communicates to the spirit world and has been since she was young, she has a sort of iffy relationship with reincarnation. She's just not really sure about it. But she uh, went to a psychic person who told her that, let's see, that in one of her lifetimes, she just described this, and she was telling her about a lifetime in which she had been a a complete um, um, immoral person. She'd been a prostitute. She'd been highly promiscuous. She'd just lived this really, um, from society's point of view, disgraceful life. And at the end of that life, she sort of tried to repent. So in the next life, she became a nun, And so she lived a very strictly pious life. This is what the psychic person was telling her about her own past lives. And she said, so first I was a prostitute and then I was a nun and now I'm a happy medium. (laughs) (laughs) So where was I with any of that? Oh, I know what I was saying. I was talking about this tendency to see certain things as good and certain things as bad, certain things as spiritually uplifting, certain things not. And of course, obviously, some things lift our energy and some depress it. But, but my world was divided up into many very small pieces. And the conflict came a little bit to a head when Swami Kriyananda asked David and me to take a very small little rundown cabin that was right near Crystal Hermitage and turn it into a house we could live in. So we were going to have to build a house. And I became aware slowly of the fact that I had a deep association of spirituality and poverty in my mind. And the idea that we would build and own and live in a house instead of a trailer or a cabin or, you know, something really... Because in all the years up until then at Ananda Village, we lived very humbly. Um, I I was really... um, inwardly disturbed by that. It, it really seemed to spell the end of everything to me. So my response to it was that I, would, I thought we should build the house badly and make sure it was ugly. That was like my not, not entirely intelligent reaction, but it was just a way that that way I would prove that I wasn't really engaged in this. And that was when I really began to understand how differently David perceived reality. Whereas I was looking at all the waves, he thought, well, you know, yesterday we lived in a little cabin, now Swami's asked us to build this house, so we build a house. It's all a flow of energy. And if the project now is to build a house, well then self evident, we, we pay attention to it and we do it the way it's meant to be done. You know, we do it within our very limited budget, within our small needs, but but if it's there to be done, it needs to have full concentrated attention and it needs to be done with the best that's in us because the only reason and this was way back from our Gita class you may remember when we talked about the gunas when we don't give something our best when we don't put out dynamic energy it's always because tamo guna has a little bit of a hold of us and so in as much as the tamo guna being the lower darkening quality the inert quality rajasic energy is the active quality and sattvic energy is the calm quality and our um, ambition, spiritually speaking, is to um, transcend tamoguna, the energy that, that darkens our consciousness, become at least active, and ultimately to become divinely active. And the reason we—it's spiritually right to strive for excellence—is because what keeps us from excellence is our being entrapment in tamaguna. And so by striving to, to be excellent, we also expunge from our consciousness that tamasic energy, and that's our real victory. But, but uh, sloppy work is always a sign of tamasic energy. So for David, well, we need to put forth sattvic, you know, dynamic energy, to just say, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, what the shape of the windows is. It doesn't matter whether there's harmony in the lines of the house. You know, it doesn't matter if it's really ugly from the outside. Just all the kinds of things you could say, either pretending detachment or just not having the energy to really apply yourself to the project at hand. And I was pretending det- detachment, but really I was, I was uh, masker, masking fear. And David, it's just a, a flow of energy. You know, the flow of energy was this. Now the flow of energy is building a house. So let's just be in the flow of energy. Who cares? And you see how how much freer that is? But how that also keeps you very much in the present tense. Because if it's just a flow of energy, it's always a flow of energy. That's, what's your hurry, honey? It's just one damn thing after another. It's like, where are you going Where are you going to go where your experience of life is going to be other than just a flow of energy? No matter how many incarnations you have, no matter how many countless planets you live on, you're always going to be centered right where you are. You're going to be right in yourself. I mean, I've had moments of almost panic at just that realization rising in my mind that I'm always going to be conscious. Does that ever make anyone else nervous? Sometimes it makes me really nervous. Just like the absolute inescapability of having to deal with this consciousness. That there's there's absolutely no way out. You will always be where you are. That's what he says. You will always be right here, right now think how much energy we lose wishing that we weren't right here, right now. I I mean, I go through it all the time. Although, I've gradually begun to appreciate that the more we are right here, right now, the more the longing not to be goes away. Because really that's all that's ever happening. It's just a flow of energy. And that, that leads to this um, lack of con- lack of concern about time, but not in a negative sense. I joke, uh, David and I have a, what I, I say is actually a Siddhi. A Siddhi is like a divine um, power that you have, spiritual power, which is that we are always on time. <laughs> it's just like amazingly on time. We drove once from Santa Rosa all the way to an Ananda meditation retreat. We left Santa Rosa and... and And David said, oh, I think we'll get there about 7. We pulled in at 7, you know, 7.00, like this. Yesterday, on Saturday, we went over to Half Moon Bay, and we were supposed to be there at 5.30, and we arrived at 5.26. I said, David, we're slipping, (laughs) you know. It's like we must not be doing our kriyas deeply enough because we would have arrived here at 5, so we drove around the block just because of principle we had to be there on time. But what I'm trying to say is, When you're not preoccupied with time, you're automatically in harmony with what happens. Because when you're in the eternal now... Because, see, some people are disregarding time, but they they are, with all due respect, extremely rude. Because they're always late. They're never where they're supposed to be. They can't meet their deadlines. You know, they're always in a rush. And that's not a disregard for time. That's tamasic energy. Because if people are expecting you to be there... You should be there. I mean, on what possible justification can you just have everybody sit and wait for you? You know? You have to be there. If you said you were going to be there, that's that's keeping your word. That's being truthful. If you said that you would produce something by a certain time, you really have to produce it by a certain time. That's what That's what gives you your magnetism. And if we just keep not keeping our commitments, you know we really lose our magnetism. But if we keep our commitments by living in the here and now then time, time and work fit almost effortlessly together. I've, I've, over the years, I realized, again, just trying to ground this lesson in things that I can actually speak from. Because my personal battle in life has been anxiety. You know, just, I, I, I usually don't drink caffeine because I say to my friends, do you want me wired, you know, like this and on caffeine? Is that really like, think about it. But, uh, it's, uh, I'm very high-strung. I have been high-strung. It's not really so true anymore. But I have been very high-strung and I can easily sort of go off. So I've had to find everywhere I can possibly think of because at a certain, at a certain point in one's spiritual life, I've, I've found this useful. Sometimes there's, one realizes that there are fundamental issues that are really the core of everything else. And that if you just work on one fundamental reality, often it'll start helping everything else. I remember when I first thought of this, I just realized that I, I just was scattered. I just couldn't keep a focus. And I just had to start saying no to a lot of things. This was many years ago. Because I didn't have the energy to match all my enthusiasms. And by just trying to be less scattered, I found that you know a host of other issues began to resolve. But at a certain point, and I'm using myself as an example because I'm the one I happen to know well, um, but I just realized that just that tendency to feel stressed um, was polluting every other experience. And it was also the tendency to feel stress, of course, moves you into the past and into the future. And it's very difficult to feel calmly inspired if you're feeling stressed. The two are are antithetical because as soon as you start to try to get inspiration, you simultaneously become a little nervous. So I've had to think of every possible way to reduce stress. And one of them has just been this, which I realize I've drawn out of these principles without actually knowing it. This realization that if God has asked me to do it, he will also give me the ability to do it. And if God has asked me to do it in a timely fashion, if I just do what I can, he will also make it work in a timely fashion. And I guess what we're saying here is what Swami says, I make time part of the inspiration. It's, it's like, you know, Master, you heard them, it has to be ready tomorrow. You know, what am I going to do? And then just the inner remembrance of the fact that it, it's always worked out. In fact, my motto is now, something always happens. Because something always does happen. Sometimes those things are pleasant, sometimes they're unpleasant, but something always happens. So it's not like the whole universe is going to stop. So what are we so nervous about? Something is always going to happen. And of course, almost all the time, something very good happens because it just happens. It's going to come together one way or another because God is in charge. Remember that It's an absolutely gorgeous story. It's a a story about a young man who um, was sent by his parents or was orphaned. In any way, he was raised by sadhus in the forest. He was a a young boy raised among men. There were no women in his society. And he came of a certain age. You know, he was a, a young man. And one of his mentors felt that it would be beneficial for him, you know, just to sort of see the world outside their forest ashram because he um, never had. And they lived in a very um, simple um, area. And uh, many of the people were, you know, on the edge of primitive, but um, mostly really just simple and poor. And sometimes uh, the young women didn't wear a a covering over the top of their... um, of their body and their breasts were sometimes shown or they just had a light cloth and the breasts would show. And so this young man was sent by his mentor to learn a spiritual lesson apparently and he went to one of the homes in the village where his mentor had sent him, his teacher had sent him. And the door of the hut was opened by a young girl and her breasts were showing. And this young man had never seen a woman because he'd just grown up among sadhus. and so when he saw her breasts he, the only thing he could imagine was that there was something you know terribly wrong with her because he'd never seen a body with breasts on it before and he became somewhat agitated by it and the daughter was a little embarrassed and went and the father of the house came to the door and and the father could see that this wasn't an ordinary man that the that he was had a radiance to him But he was upset, and he said, my son, what's the difficulty? And he said, what's wrong with that person? You know, they have those terrible growths on their body. (laughs) And the man had the insight to know who he was, and he said, well, he said, that's my daughter. She's a young woman. She's an unmarried woman, which is why she's still uh, immodest about her person. And he said, and that, um, those breasts are, those are called breasts, and those are given there by God, and, young man said, well, why? And he said, well, she's unmarried now, but if God wills it, he said, we'll find a suitable husband for her. And if God wills, then they will be married. And then after they are married, if God wills it, perhaps she'll become pregnant. And if it is God's will, she'll give birth to a child. And when she gives birth to that child, she will be able to lift that child to her breasts and milk will flow and she will be able to give the sustaining flow of, of of food and nurture to that child. And the young man had tears running down his face by the time the story was over, and the man was even more concerned. He said, What what is it, my son? He said, If God provides so carefully for someone who may never even be born, he said. Why would I ever worry about anything? Isn't that a magnificent thought? Why don't we then take a little break on that thought? Okay. In our mind between some level of something that's, that sucks away our joy and our inspiration because we have put a time frame onto something, and that time frame carries a certain vibration with us that suddenly moves us out of what's actually happening. You know, it's it, that's 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 the whole point of this. There's only one thing ever actually happening. You are right here. You are right now. You have always been there, and you always will be. And there is a, a, a point within you from which your consciousness flows, and everything else is totally incidental to that. You know, that's that quote that he puts in here. I'm uh, that Ramana Maharshi's. Uh, Devotee comes to see him and says, I traveled halfway around the world to see you. He says, no, actually, you've stood completely still and the world has moved. I've never quite understood it. But what he's saying is, you haven't, you know, you were right here right now when you were somewhere else. So what's, what's changed? The view around you has changed, but you have always been where you are. Now this is also, this is center everywhere, circumference nowhere. That, that everything imitates from the center. And it talks about how the masters know reality from the center out, that, that they understand things from the heartbeat, from the, the, the point of origin, and that way they can understand everything. We try to understand things from, from the outside in. Uh, somebody once referred to someone's gender as being the first thing you notice and the last thing you forget about a person you can you cannot remember anything but you will almost always know that it was a man or a woman but there's nothing in there's nothing um, original meaning there's no point of origin that makes you male or female because we are not male or female we uh, assume different bodies and ultimately we are the complete balance of all the male and female energy we have to be we have to become whole within ourselves so we try to understand people by saying Oh, he's, you know, he's a man who's, he's about 50, he's, you know, tall, a little bit tall, he's a little bit stocky, he's a very natty dresser, he has this education, he speaks with such and so an accent. And then we're trying to tell everybody who this person is, isn't it so? And we're starting just completely from the outside. Swami Kriyananda, I tell this story in my book, when um, I, this this couple in our community uh, was separating. And a few of us were having dinner together and we were talking about the fact that this couple was separating. It was, you know, it wasn't making anybody happy that they were. But I, I related an incident from years earlier that i an experience I'd had with this woman and I was sort of like, you know, explaining a little maybe why their marriage hadn't been working out. I had gone shopping with her to buy a gift for her husband. And we were somewhere, and I saw this shirt, and the color of the shirt was an ideal color for him to wear because of the color of his eyes. And I said, oh, this is a beautiful shirt. This would really match his eyes. She said, what color are his eyes? (laughs) And so I'm at the dinner table. I mean, everybody else at the table just says, you know, yeah, like she's married to this man, she doesn't know what color his eyes are, and he had big, beautiful eyes, And we're all sitting there, and and I became conscious of the fact that Swamiji was completely outside of the energy that we were sharing together. And he said, I never know what color people's eyes are. He said, I don't look at their eyes. He said, I look at the consciousness through their eyes. And um, Seva, who at that time was Swami's just everyday assistant, she just was the second in command at Ananda, he saw her literally every day and had for years and she was sitting next to him at the dinner table, he said, Seba, for example, I've been working with her for years. He says, I don't know what color her eyes are. And she also has these huge brown eyes. And he looked over at her, kind of peered at her like this. He said, oh, they're brown, like that. Like a, just a total surprise. And I, it's, it's sort of like, so many times through the years with Swamiji, I think that he's, I have thought, I've learned now, I have thought that he disciplines himself to have certain attitudes, and then something will happen where I realize he's not affecting an attitude, that's just simply how he sees it. He doesn't even, he doesn't have to try to do anything, that's just his picture of reality. I mean, he's often, you know, sort of said to us that he, you know, he he doesn't, in, in company he doesn't see people as men and women. He even said more recently, he doesn't see any difference between animals and people, He just sees egos struggling toward liberation. In other words, everything is perceived in terms of its consciousness. Now that's, you see, that's understanding it from the inside out. That's what he writes here. God understands us from the inside out. He lives at the point where our energy flows and he understands our flow of energy. We understand ourselves and we understand others in terms of how that energy is finally manifested in its final end point, we see the final end point and then we try to work back. This is a man of such and so in nature. And then we try to understand who he is. And that's why saints and masters can do such remarkable things in terms of understanding and helping and shifting people's energy because they stand way inside. We were having a conversation earlier about uh, teenage children and... Uh, uh, One of my friends who worked a lot with teenagers uh, was talking about, among many things, one of the things that's so confusing about teenagers. He says is that they're constantly trying on new personalities. And the great thing about teenagers is they can live very much in the now. So whatever personality they're wearing at that moment, as far as they're concerned, is the personality they've always had and always will have. Of course, their parents tend to remember 15 minutes ago when they were someone else. (laughs) But the teenager just wears that personality and that's the only thing that they are. And, you know, another friend of mine, his, um, his daughter got a... was probably a belly button ring or something, you know, something really terrible that he didn't want her to do or a tattoo or something like that. And he had expressly forbidden her to do it and she did it. And, um, and he was, knowing how off-center he was about it, he came first to me, which was really a good idea... And we talked about it for a long time, and I said, and, you know, he was going to try to assert with her the fact that he told her that she couldn't do it, and therefore, I said, do you think there's any chance that she doesn't know that you disapprove? I mean, like, is this going to be, like, shocking news to her? Oh my gosh, Daddy doesn't like this. Do you think that will be, like, a like big revelation? Of course not. He knew perfectly well. I said, so, why don't we start by trying to, like, get inside of her reality? Like... Not not just, what were you thinking, but what were you thinking? You know, like, what was moving you? What, what was happening to you from the inside that caused you to do this, knowing, you know, all these other things? But you see how delicate that is. You have to be completely um, whatever you have to be. But he, he tried it. He said it was a, like a totally different conversation. She couldn't even believe for a long time that what was really happening. Another woman friend of mine, she found out before her son told her that her son was gay. She was a little bit not ready for that. But she also was very eager, you know, to keep the relationship with the son. so she came to me first, knowing that it was about to happen. And I did the same thing. You know, okay, you're looking at this from the outside and you're trying to push from the outside back to him. I said, stand inside his reality. You know, really stand inside his reality. Look at the world from inside of him. What is his flow of energy? What is he feeling? What, is he, what does he see when he looks at you? And, you know, she really dedicated herself to that, went the same way. Instead of this, what are you thinking? Just like, really, who are you? You know, tell me about yourself. Tell me how this feels to you. And halfway through the conversation, the son, in a very positive way, said... I can't believe I'm having this conversation with you. You know, and it was, it just, she said later, it absolutely saved their relationship. Because she, it, would, it would not have occurred to her to enter into the center of his reality. Um, recently I was talking about this on Monday night. Um, two different people have done, you know, behaved in ways that were, were not anything to be proud of. And Swami Kriyananda's response to both of them was very, very different. With one, he was extremely stern and just forcefully insisting that this was not acceptable and that, you know, energy had to shift. With the other, it was more like, well, these things happened, kind of, just like, let's go on. And someone was asking to me, why the big difference? I said, well, this one person with whom he was stern really had the capacity to transcend this difficulty. And the other one really didn't. And the best that other person could do would be sort of to just ride through this without developing too much of a guilt complex and just go forward. You know, these are circum- this is reality, let's not worry about theory, let's just go forward. How, how do you know the difference? Well, you have to stand inside. You have to see it as God sees it. You have to really see people in terms of their own reality. Swami Kriyananda, he's my greatest example, of course, has an absolute genius, and I've really meditated on this because it is so pronounced and so remarkable. For making every person on all sides of a controversy feel that he's on your side without ever actually agreeing or disagreeing with you. But just, and the phrase is, I can understand why you feel that way. You know, we were involved in the middle of the um, SRF lawsuit. The inspiration came um, through this community that we were going to go down and, and demonstrate at the SRF convocation and expose to the thousands of SRF members who were there that SRF had been suing Ananda for over a decade. Or almost a decade, because it was a secret for most of their members, even though they were paying for it with their donations. And this thought came, and it came very strongly, that we just needed to expose them. And uh, <laughs> it was so much fun. And uh, a lot of people within Ananda, people I deeply love and respect, thought it was the worst idea they had ever heard of. And they could not imagine anything worse than going to the SRF Convocation and standing on the sidewalk with signs, which is what we ended up exactly doing. And it was very intense within Ananda because feelings were very strong. You know, it's a spiritual event. How, how dare you impose this? The other side of it was, we have to do something. And, and Swami was just right in the center of that and everybody was calling him to just say, you know how can you let this happen? Or, here's our plan. You know, like this. And he just managed to remain absolutely supportive of everyone, even though people were on completely opposite sides of the question with very strong feelings. And he stayed on it because he stepped into the inside of each individual and said, I understand how you feel that way. And then, well, if that's how you feel, then. And then he would sort of suggest what you might do, you know, given that's how you feel. And so you walked away feeling like he was helping you move forward. But it was always completely neutral. It was only about the flow of energy. If that's how your energy is flowing, maybe this is what you should do. You know, it was, it was incredible. And everything about that event taught me a lot, but I think that taught me the most. Because it, it became for me like this um, benchmark of how you relate to people. You know, just being in the reality of... And it really, it relates to this issue of timelessness, doesn't it? Because it's just being in the now. It's being right here with this person, not thinking about who I talked to yesterday, not thinking about who they're going to talk to after we hang up, not thinking about how I'm going to reconcile it with this. See how much we're always calculating from the outside? We're thinking, if I do this, then this will happen. If I do that, then this will happen. If I said this, then this will happen. And what Swamiji does, literally, just everything, absolutely everything goes away, and he's just right there. But you see, if you're that completely right there, then superconsciousness comes in. And superconsciousness is where all the differences resolve into perfect harmony. It's where uh, where all the apparent separation comes back to one, is where the flow of energy starts. So even if from that point it manifests out in all these other ways, when you're standing at that point, you're standing at the point where there is no controversy, there is no disharmony. There's just the truth. And we tune into it, then we move out from there. And Swami is always telling us, if you really want to um, be effective, if you want to succeed, if you want to be inspired, then you, you have to first get into the center of what you're trying to do. You have to get into the energy flow of what you're trying to do. If you try to do it just from the outside, it's always confusing. But from the center, it isn't confusing. It's, it's perfectly clear. Does that make sense? Do we have any questions or comments on any of this very interesting subject? What has turned out to be? Yes? Um, she's working with the microphone here. Are you going to ask a question, tomorrow? Uh-huh. I am. So... The the microphone is at the end, the the little tiny point there. No, not that one, the other point. That point, got it. Okay. Uh Hearing you speak about getting into someone's center to understand, Uh can you give some more tips on that? A child, for instance. A child? A child. Oh, children are marvelous. Trying to to help. I think the first thing you have to do um, is you have to stop I mean, you you really just have to stop. You have to just physically stop. I mean, to get involved with anyone, you have to physically stop. And you have to not... You have to still your eyes and just surrender to exactly where you are and just look at them. You know, just really just look and not have any other part of you. It was interesting when I was Swami Kriyananda's secretary for a while and I used to have to keep his appointments and people who wanted to see, that that, that time you could just make an appointment and go see him and I was the one that you had to speak to before you could see him. And sometimes he would make an announcement if you want to have an interview, as he called it, with me afterwards, you know, see Asha. So oftentimes after a program or something, a lot of people would come up to me. I would be there with my little book running the story. But I realized that the entire key to working with it was that whoever I was talking to, I just needed to stop. And just be there. But then, also, you put your attention at the spiritual eye, and it, it, you, you rest in the heart and you put your attention at the spiritual eye, is what, how I would say it. So that you, you're just really there. Um, and then, I the only word I can think of is become very interested. Just be extremely interested in what's in front of you. And everyone looks beautiful to you then. And, you know, and th- that's, that's what, that's what really, I think, gives that sense of it, is that the, just the sudden realization of how, how much divine integrity every individual has, you know, and little children are, well, particularly fun, little children, but all, all young people, because they're very fresh. And if you, if you really just begin to sense how, how just beautiful this person is, um, then almost in that moment, the understanding comes. So what I, what I love about Swami, again, is that he has such faith in our spiritual future that, that, that he, I think it's also very helpful to, to essentially project, but you project it not as a technique, but as a fact, that this person is uh, beautiful and successful and their divine future is assured. And whatever difficulty they might be facing now is so temporary. And you just kind of settle deeply into that divine fact um, in relation to this individual, and pretty much everything follows from that. It helps you to do all those things too if you make sure you keep your little self out of the way. Well, yeah, it's impossible to do those things if your self is too much in it.
1: It tends to come, get in, you have to kind of get it
0: away. I, I find that, that's why I said you have to stop. on every level you have to stop if this person is standing I was very struck by um, not Dr. Ritchie that's his name the man who wrote that wonderful book Return from Tomorrow which is he died he had a, a death experience when he was 20 or 22 and went into the presence of Jesus and just completely reoriented his life afterwards but he realized and he had not he had not behaved that way until that point that every encounter was important. And so so after that, whenever anyone and for the rest of his life he became a psychiatrist, whenever anyone really came in front of him, he he recognized that there was nothing more important that could possibly happen in that moment except that person. So he would just stop. And when I was working for Swami in that situation too, I also discovered that if I completely stopped for every individual, well here's this is time again then everything could be handled very quickly and easily. And if there were a lot of people and I didn't completely stop, it took so much longer because no one ever actually got my attention and so they were constantly clamoring for it. And, and I was also a little confused because I was never giving my full attention. And you know, you give your full attention, you can still glance over here and give your full attention for a split second to this person, but then you bring it back. You know, it's not like you... Or just tunnel vision and you don't know there's a crowd around. And that's all timelessness, in fact, isn't it? Because you're, you're just in the complete now at the moment. And that, I mean that doesn't mean that you're impractical because I've said to people, I'd love to talk to you about this longer but there's a big crowd of people standing behind you. <laughs> you know, so it's not like you become impractical. Why don't you call me or let me talk to you afterward? You can still move in a practical way through things. But if you're completely there, if you're completely there with people, they'll take anything from you. And that's, again, that's also Swami's secret. When he sits down with you, he sees your spiritual potential, he sees your spiritual future, and he's just your friend in that moment. Does that help at all? It makes life much more interesting. Yes. I think just talk right to the the highest, right there, yes, that's it. Is it on? we just leave it on since we're asking? Quick.
1: Okay. There you go. Um, first of all, I, I just want to comment on, on the reading. Swami's um, 1995 year was incredible. It was an incredible year, uh, all, yeah. All, all what he, he went through. I was just blown away by it. That so was it was kind his... of inspirational because he lived through it. And I thought, yeah. wow, a person can live through something like this. Yeah. And it's his proving his, uh, his points in the writing. Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> and uh, I just want to, my wife and I were driving here tonight um, wondering about that issue with our teenage daughter We were trying to figure out what to do. But he gave us a good idea. I think we'll, we'll try that, uh, trying to see. Usually when, when my daughter doesn't do well in school, I, I tend, my tendency is to come down hard on him. And uh, but then my wife's been beating me up for doing that, so
0: she's been coming was, down hard I was on quiet you. Quiet
1: on the ride up here, <laughs> figuring out okay, how else am I going to react to this? But your your suggestion gives me some ideas. You know,
0: specifically to speak about your teenage daughter. Now that you've given me a slight opening, um, my belief is that the life that teenagers are facing now has no relationship to what we went through as teenagers, and even four or five years ago. It just, I think that the way children are being educated, the, uh, what they're being exposed to, and I also actually think what they're actually, the world they're going to grow up and actually be part of, the karmic, their karmic trajectory, their, uh, their future, is not something that, that um, is that similar to the past. I think the pressures they're subjected to, the absolute immorality of the culture in which they're growing up, the complete disintegration of the values that we, didn't, we just took for granted. And I think it's extremely important when you're dealing with teenagers, especially a teenager who's veering off the whatever the little road that you've put out in front, that it's, it's extremely important to put aside all your preconceptions about anything that they should be, because for one, I really don't think we know what they should be, because I just don't think their world is going to look like our world look like, um, and this and so and they they instinctively know this. This I mean, even I, you know, in the well, I grew up in the '60s, you know, so my world was really different. But I remember those years very vividly, and I have a very strong memory of what it felt to be 13 and 14 and 15 and 17. And I vividly remember my father, because I I didn't relate that much to my mother, but my father trying to relate to me and my extremely strong sense that he really didn't understand. And I know that's a cliche, but it it was true. He was trying to give me his reality and it was so not my reality. You know, I I tried to explain it to him. He was a very good father too. He wasn't a heavy-handed father, but we were just living in different worlds. All generations do, but I think now is much more extreme. And I, I think it's very important to get into the, the, whatever it is that the child is really experiencing, not just what you think they should be experiencing. And, and whether or not your solutions, be open enough to find out whether or not your solutions have anything to do with what they really need. You know, because I just don't think it's valid. It may turn out to be that way. It may turn out that, you know, the child will just come back to the track that you're on. But I think you have to say to them first, because what goes on in those schools, the way they're taught, what's expected of them, the pressure, the complete absence of genuine nurture, and the, the complete indifference to whether they're actually educated. You know, and believe me, these kids are not stupid. They can tell. They can tell that nobody really gives a damn and that the only thing that's being asked of them... I I was amazed in Cupertino, you know, this big fancy high school over there, they had that huge cheating scandal that went right through the school. And I read it, I watched it through the papers and the radio because I was very interested in it. You know, the, the best kids from the best families were all cheating. And what was so remarkable and just upsetting to the parents is that basically the kids said essentially said, I respected them for it. Why not? All you care about is my grade. So I found an easier way to get my grade. Like, so? And, but that's exactly what these kids have been taught. You're making your resume from when you're in kindergarten. It's all about getting into the right college so you can get the right job. Nobody is asking them any other questions. They don't get art. They don't get music. They don't get a childhood. And so, sure. I mean, like, you know, your father's maybe a lawyer, and he wins the case. He doesn't entirely tell the truth. And then the the same lawyer turns to his son and said, you know, I I loved... uh, The movie, I think it was called Clueless. It was about a a teenage girl. It was just a darling movie. I was totally charmed by it. And she was being raised by her father because her mother had died. And her father was a litigator and an attorney, very successful attorney. And and she, um, you know, she got her grades and they weren't quite high enough, so she went and negotiated with her teachers and got her grades raised. And then she brought the grades to her father and somehow he saw that the grades had been changed and she explained that she had negotiated them higher and he said, I couldn't be prouder if they were actually your grades. <laughs> <laughs> because that was his values. That, but that's what they, but you, you can see what that would do to a sensitive child. I remember when a 14-year-old girl was going to a big high school and started flunking. And uh, she turned to her mother and said, Mother, you wouldn't put up with it either. And the mother absolutely knew that it was true. She wouldn't put up with it for a minute. And the girl was just, I'm not going to deal with this. It, it's so different. Now, I'm not justifying it, because sometimes there's tamasic energy, sometimes there's a whole lot of really bad things in there. But I think if you at least go to the heart. and But you have to be so detached. You know, your kids have to feel that this is not a technique, and this is not a sneaky agenda to get what you want. This is an actual... See, I have a nephew. I have no children. I just have a nephew. So I'm not his mother. I'm not his grandmother. I'm just me. So, I I mean, I I practice with him. It's very interesting. You know, tell me about it. That sounds so nuts to me. Tell me about it. But you're, you're not a stupid child. Tell me about it. Why are you doing it like this? And it's fascinating. And the most amazing thing is he always has a good reason. And often a very interesting reason... And sometimes a reason that would never have occurred to me, because I just didn't have any concept of where he was actually living, what his world was. But that's the same question you just asked, Amara. All those things, just be in the now. I'm not anybody. I have no personality. I have no preferences. I have nothing here. I'm just here. So what's the actual reality in this moment? And when you're there, you see, we're all afraid to be there. Because we think, what will happen if I don't behave like a mother or a father or a, an employer or this? But if you're there, you'll be in superconsciousness. And then everything will work. Does that make sense? And we'll pray for her. Any, any other questions or thoughts? Give me a, just a half a minute on education and children and I'll take about <laughs> half an hour. Okay. Then I think that's the end of our story. Thank you all very much. We will probably go on from this lesson, although I I keep forgetting to do the visualizations at the end. You have to remind me before we sit down. Yeah, I just, two weeks in a row, I keep forgetting to do them. So, but I suspect we'll go on from this lesson because I think we've milked all that we can, all that I can out of this lesson. Okay.